0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for putting creation and your church into order. When you separated the land from the water, you put chaos into containment, and you made the land a place for us to dwell. When you separated day from night, you set in motion a daily rhythm, giving us fresh mercy every morning with the sunrise. The plants, the animals, the stars, All of them are part of your good ordering of the universe, and all of them have purpose in your eyes. And you gave us the purpose of filling the earth with your dominion. You've made us in your image to be the pinnacle of your created order. We are made to partner with you in your work of filling the earth with your order that points to your glory and your goodness and your wisdom. And so, Lord, forgive us for falling short of your good order. The father of lies is active in the world, and God, have mercy on us where we've listened. Have mercy where we've been deceived and called good evil and evil good. Forgive us for not trusting that you are good in all of your ways. Forgive us for setting ourselves as judges above you for what is good order. Open our eyes every day and even right now to how we can surrender ourselves to your good order, most especially how your glory is displayed in it. Father, let our church be submitted to you and let us see the wisdom in your order. And we pray this for other churches that we partner with in spreading your good news. Specifically, we pray for Canby Christian and their pastor, Aaron Adam, and Trinity Church and their pastor, Thomas Terry. Make the light of your gospel in those churches shine to their whole community and protect them from the enemy when he resists their obedience to you. Give their congregations unity Don't let any divisiveness or immorality or unrighteousness remain in their church. Instead, use your word spoken through their pastors to build them up into Christ so that they would be united to him and in him, giving a picture to the world of your holy love. We thank you for your redemption and we ask that you would complete what you have begun in us. Use your word proclaimed now to purify us to change our hearts and to return us to a place of submission so that your church here can spread your dominion and your glory through the whole earth. All of it in and by and through your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray all these things. Amen.
1: Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Thanks, Ryan. And you can open up to the letter, the first letter to Timothy. I'm excited to start a new book of the Bible with you this morning, and I know you are too because you're a church that loves the Word. Amen? Amen. And so it's good to be back in the New Testament after spending some time in Daniel. I was amazingly blessed by that book. I hope you were as well. First Timothy, and we're going to be in the first four verses this morning as we introduce the book. This fall, we will have our 10-year anniversary as a church. Eleven years ago, we started a Bible study in Kaiser with myself, my wife, our brand new uh, twin boys, and one other family. It was a very small first meeting. <laughs> and the following year, by God's grace, 10, uh, we, we started our, our first official meeting as a church, and now 10 years later, here we are. Friends, take a look around and see what the Lord has done. God is good, amen? Amen. In our first few years, being a church was pretty basic. Being so small, no one expected much, and so if I strummed a few chords, uh, sang a few songs, yes, I had to be the worship leader as well. I'm amazed anybody stayed. (laughs) And if I taught through a book, that was really all that was needed, and being such a small community, it was easy to keep tabs on everyone and keep connected. But as with any family that grows and gets older, There has been a need to organize. Many of you new parents who are on your second or third child know what I'm talking about. To bring order to a bit of chaos that comes from a growing family. Imagine if you suddenly had 137 children, or 250. (laughs) What has been surprising to me, though, is that this effort to bring order is often met with a negative response. You see, our society largely rebels against organization, authority, formality, and order. Our culture romanticizes spontaneity and chaos. Just think about an organized date night versus a spontaneous one. Which does society say is more romantic? We prize anything that is organic or grassroots. We say that these things are more quote-unquote genuine than something ordered. And this has bled through into the church, especially as the influence of Pentecostalism has grown over the last 200 years, And one of the side effects of this theological battle is that unbiblical theology regarding the Holy Spirit and the church has pitted chaos and spontaneity against organization and order in the church. So we need to turn to Scripture to define what the church is, to tell us who populates it, what its practices should be, who it's to be led by. But my experience with the average Christian today is when asked where to turn in their Bible to see what the church is supposed to be, many wouldn't know where to turn. They would be unsure as to where to look to define what the church is to be. And if they did know where to look, they would probably suggest the Gospels and Acts, and they would do so out of the true premise that for one to know the basics about something, one should go to the source or origin. And so there's truth in that. Unfortunately, this view lacks an understanding of the God-intended growth and change that was to occur as the people of God stretched the boundaries outward to the Gentiles. The family of God was going to grow. Now, how many of you, to understand what your family would look like today with many children, would go back to your first date? You might have some understanding of the foundation of your relationship, but that would not be information that would be helpful in ordering your family today. The Gospels were intended to be the hinge upon which all Scripture swings, and I'm not trying to lower their importance, trust me. They are the core. The work of Jesus Christ in the Gospels is the core of our faith. Without it, we have nothing. They are the center of it all, the truth of how God brought redemption through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, as well as his training of the new Israel led by the new 12, the apostles, who would start the church that would bring in both Jew and Gentile. And then the acts of the apostles, they then came and they were the transition point as the apostles took the gospel of Jesus Christ to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They established new communities of Jesus followers in urban areas across the Gentile world to act as local assemblies of God's people in the center of the nations, just as Israel once was. But as this new movement grew, especially through the ministry of Paul the Apostle, these fledgling messianic communities began to struggle. You see, they were sheep largely without shepherds, illiterate in their knowledge of the teachings of Jesus, and quickly willing to let worldly ideologies, even demonically driven false teachers into their midst without knowledge of how to conduct themselves. And so, just as with our little local assembly here in Salem, there needed to be a restructuring and reordering so as to steward the people of God in a way that glorified him, in a way that protected his gospel, and in a way that drove the church forward in its goal to proclaim his kingdom, reign, and redemption. And this, dear brothers and sisters, is where we look to see not just the beginning of the church, but what the church became under the divine sovereignty of God. We look to the epistles written to the churches and their leaders. And so as a church, we as your pastors and elders think that it's a great opportunity for us at this point in the life of this church, at this point in coming back from uh, all that's happened over the last 16 months, it's a great opportunity for us as we order this church to look at the direction of Paul as an apostle and the direction he gave to his young disciple Timothy as they led and pastored the local church in the city of Ephesus. Paul writes to Timothy, first and second Timothy, he writes to Titus in Crete, the book of Titus, and he does so out of a pastoral heart to order the church. That's why they're called the pastoral epistles. And so this morning I want to introduce you to the first letter of Paul to Timothy and show you his call to steward the household of God well, to order. The household of God. And so that is what I've entitled the sermon this morning, if you're taking notes, An Introduction to 1 Timothy A Call to Steward the Household of God. This morning, I'm going to introduce you to the letter by way of looking at just the first few verses, and hopefully, we'll begin to be challenged by God's gracious, inspired words through Paul. A Call to Steward the Household of God. So let's go ahead and take a look together at the first four verses. First Timothy chapter one, verse one. "Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope." To Timothy, my true child in the faith: Grace, mercy and peace. From God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith." The first major theme we will see in this letter can be seen here even in verse 1, where we see that 1 Timothy is a letter establishing authority in the local church. 1 Timothy is a letter establishing authority in the local church. And notice that it's not just the leaders of the local church, but in the local church. This is part of why we are a congregational church. In typical fashion for letters of the first century, the greeting begins with the sender of the letter, Paul, or in the Greek, Paulus. In our English translation, Paul steps up and says, I'm writing this to you, and it's coming from me, but he adds something else there. Before we move on too quickly, we want to take the following words, not just as a title, but we want to examine them. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Imagine if, right now, we heard a chopper landing in our parking lot. and We looked out and we saw that it was Marine One. Forget which party it is, but just think about the presidential seal. And a person came through the doors right now, right here, ran up on stage, showed their presidential seal and said, I am here in the authority of the President of the United States. Would we just go, "Eh, no biggie? No, we would stop what we were doing, we would listen intently to hear what was said next, and we would probably act on it in some way, shape, or form. This phrase here, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, this phrase so easily glossed over to get to the meat of the letter is foundational for the letter, for all of his letters. Paul is stating in verse 1 that he is an appointed, commissioned, and sent delegate in the authority of the God of the universe. He is sent on behalf of Almighty God, the King of Heaven. Should we take notice? He's also reminding the listeners, including us, that God the Father and Jesus the Son are indeed two of the three persons of the Trinity, but ultimately one in Godhead and authority. Notice that it says God our Savior and his anointed king. The son of man from Daniel who rules in righteousness and justice over the people that he has purchased by his blood and through whom he has provided hope of eternal life. That's who's being talked about when he says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. That's powerful. Paul could be speaking with no higher given authority. That's the authority that has commanded Paul to speak what he will speak throughout this letter. The question is, did the church at Ephesus and will we listen? It's this authority that will allow him to exhort Timothy in some very pointed, and I must say, as the guy who's going to be teaching some of it, uncomfortable items. You see, Paul will outline sin in a way that definitely goes against our society He will outline lies and errant theology that was creeping into the church at Ephesus. He will show that it's important for pastors to point out even other teachers who are speaking errant theology. That's real uncomfortable. He'll state clearly how to discipline false teachers and rebellious elders and members in the church. He will state clearly what true doctrine and the gospel are and how they should be proclaimed. He will put boundaries around what level of practical care is provided within the church and what it should look like, in essence, putting boundaries on what has become known as social outworkings or social justice. That's uncomfortable in our current society. He will spend over a chapter clearly outlining what is required of leaders in the church and who should and who should not have authority in the church. And friends, within this statement, Paul will write a section of scripture that is seen with intense animosity in our world today stating why the local church, the household of God, is to be led by men serving in the office of elder and men only. That's uncomfortable. Guess who drew the short straw to preach that section? Friends, if these were just the opinions of one man leaning on his own authority, it would be of no use to us, and we would be right to throw it out. But Paul will speak these things not on his own authority, not just in the cultural context of the day, but on the authority of God Almighty, the Holy Creator, the Lawgiver, and Judge. So the onus is on the person who wants to dismiss it, not upon God. The Greek word translated here, command, by command of God our Savior, is that of a royal decree, as if established in the royal law for all to see. It's from this imparted authority as apostle that Paul is on his own imparted authority to Timothy, who is acting as apostolic delegate to the fledgling church in Ephesus. As Paul follows Christ, Timothy is to follow Paul, and ultimately Christ. Timothy's job was to set up more permanent leadership structures, appoint elders and deacons, and protect the theology and doctrine that was being passed on among the congregants. Apostolic authority that carries with it the authority of God was present in what he said. And it's only present in the church today when the word of God is preached as the original author intended, in its context culturally, historically, linguistically, grammatically, and canonically what we try to preach every time we, as errant men, step into this pulpit. And that is why we take studying Scripture together in this way so seriously. Because if God's authority sits behind a command or belief, we would be foolish beyond reason to dismiss it on the grounds that we know or feel differently or that it makes us uncomfortable. First Timothy is no different as there has been effort over the last 200 years to discredit this book and the things within it by saying that Paul didn't write it. But let me put that to rest quickly. The church saw fit to include this book in its use and canon, and one of its primary uses was to fight back against heresy and false teachers. Do you really think that the church, led by the Holy Spirit, would have simply let it slip into use if it were not genuinely authored by Paul? Now, if you need more information, I could spend the next two or three hours giving you all the details behind why I am firmly confident that the Apostle Paul wrote this to Timothy. And I'm happy to walk through that with you if you'd like, make a meeting with me, and we can do that. But this is written by Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus. So we can be assured that he has written a letter here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, establishing authority in the church founded upon true doctrine and led by godly men who example God's activity in their lives. But not only a letter establishing the authority in the church, we will also see, as we read through 1 Timothy, that it's a letter calling for unity in the family of the local church. A letter calling for unity in the family of the local church. Back when our church put covenant membership in place, we taught, taught through the letter to the Ephesians, and in that letter, as we heard uh, from the earlier reading that Kristen read for us, God's desire and plan for the local church is that they are to operate in unity. They should have the collective goal of building up the body of Christ so that it reflects Christ in holiness and truth and love. In fact, it is to this end that God gifts the church with people, with leaders who can serve them and help them to stand firm in good doctrine. Most likely, Ephesians was written shortly before the pastoral epistles to Timothy and Titus, but we can see their parallels and how much they work with one another because so many of the things Timothy was called to put in place were also in Paul's letter to the congregation in full. In that letter, Paul calls them to unity and wholeness, walking in love as a family. To that end, Paul even includes direction on how to order immediate families in that letter to the Ephesians as part of the larger family of the local church, that immediate families are to be microcosms of the greater family of God. Now around the same time as that letter was sent, Timothy was also dispatched as an apostolic delegate to continue the work of the church planting that Paul had first begun. And when when Paul writes his first letter of command, encouragement and instruction, he makes reference to this idea of the spiritual family that is built within the church. He's setting up the family of the local church for Timothy to minister in there in Ephesus. And so here in 1 Timothy 1, verse 2, we see the same idea in how Paul addresses the primary recipient of the letter, Timothy. But notice what Paul calls him, Timothy, my true child in the faith. The Greek word behind true, as it reads here, is genuine or more importantly, legitimate, as opposed to illegitimate. In the history of Acts and within the salutations of other letters, we see that Timothy was a trusted and faithful companion and co-laborer of Paul. Paul trusted him with his baby, the local church that he started up, in other words. Paul most likely yet uh, met a young Timothy in his first trip to the cities of Derby and Lystra in Acts 13 and 14, but it wasn't until Acts 16 and a second visit to that area that Paul asked Timothy to join him on his missionary journeys. This is from Acts 16, 1 through 3. Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Man, you really had to want to be a missionary in those days, huh? Right? According to Jewish law, because only his mother was Jewish Jewish, and his father was, was not, Timothy would have been seen as an illegitimate child according to the people of God. And not being circumcised, he would have been seen as outside the covenant. Even though his mother was a believer, he would have been seen as an illegitimate son of the covenant." But Paul calls him a son in the faith four times in the two letters, and here in 1 Timothy 1-2, he uses the word true or legitimate. As part of becoming involved in the missionary work of Paul, Timothy voluntarily took on the sign of circumcision, not because it was required to be a Christian, but so that he would be accepted by the Jewish people to whom he was proclaiming the gospel. He was becoming all things to all people. And so here in 1 Timothy, Paul is stating that it is in their shared faith that Timothy has become a true, legitimate son. Now imagine what that was like for Timothy, who had grown up his whole life being seen as an outsider to the covenant, to have this man, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Jew of Jews, the one who had stood before not only Gamaliel, but Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, saying to him, you are now legitimately in the covenant. You are a true son of God. This is not some invention of Paul's own mind, this idea that the church is the family of God and that those engaged together in the faith are family, but rather it was built off of the very words of Christ. Remember Matthew 12:50 when his mother and and siblings came to him and everyone said to him, Hey, your family's outside. What does he say? He says, This is not my family. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Just as children are called to follow the example of their parents and love well their siblings in a family unit, we as disciples are called to follow the example of those more mature in the faith and love well our siblings in the faith. And this is the truth that's at the base of much of the instruction to come in this letter. For Timothy was to treat the local church at Ephesus as a family, the very household of God. Now, many theologians agree that the central verse that summarizes the point of this letter is actually 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. You can look there, just turn the page. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. Paul writes in the center of this letter that we'll get to eventually here. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. It's the core of this letter. So that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Throughout this letter, we will see the church as a family of God, Believers as brothers and sisters, and the local church specifically as how you participate in that family, and this united family of faith organized in order to minister to one another in an effort to be a light and beacon to the surrounding world. Now perhaps you as a person have been a Lone Ranger much of your life. Maybe you've not even felt as though you fit into your own family of origin, or maybe you've never felt like you fit into a friend group. Christ is calling you to purposefully and actively enter into the family he has created by his gospel and to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they don't wear a mask or do wear a mask or get vaccinated or don't get vaccinated, whether they breastfeed their children or don't breastfeed their children, whether they use cloth diapers or not cloth diapers, whether they vote a certain way or don't vote a certain way. Now, many people who then step into the church began to build up what Bonhoeffer called this wish dream where they think that the church is supposed to be perfect and take care of any and every one of their emotional needs and that there should never be problems. But friends, can you raise your hand if that happens in your family? I mean, the Spangles are close, right? Of course. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, but what does a family do? It sticks to one another. It's loyal and faithful, just as our God is loyal and faithful, and you work out your issues because of your covenant loyalty to one another. Friends, the church is not an event that you attend or a method of penance you check off of your spiritual list when you feel especially sinful. The gathering we have on Sunday is the family meal that resets our week so that we can go forth and minister to one another throughout the week and proclaim the gospel to a lost world by our love one for another. Western culture often raises, quote, the family, end quote, in idolatry above all else, including the church. Have you ever noticed that in the Western world, honor mother and father is the one commandment everybody's supposed to remember? Even if your parents or non-believers are leading you in a way that's contrary to the gospel? This letter will challenge you in this regard. I want to ask you, do you have the same view of family with regards to the local church that Paul does? Are your immediate families and their values, priorities, and schedules part of the church or at odds with the church? We often think we are loving our children well when life and sports and schools and social events overwhelms connection to our church family, but friends, you are discipling by omission in those moments. Don't be surprised when your children walk away from the church and from the faith, do, at least in part, to the apathy you as their parents have modeled for them. Perhaps your value of the sanctity of the family and its tension with participation in the local church needs to be adjusted. And I know I'm killing an idol of the Western world, so if you're angry with me, you're probably walking in that idolatry. Paul's letter to Timothy will call us to an even greater unity as a family in the faith. And it grants Timothy the paternal authority to order this household that was started through the work of Paul, Timothy's father in the faith. And so we see a letter that gives authority to the local church. And we see a letter calling for unity in the family of the local church. The third, 1 Timothy, will also be, A letter proclaiming God's steadfast love for the local church. A letter proclaiming God's steadfast love for the local church. At the end of verse 2, Paul uses a usual greeting, grace and peace. You'll see that in his other letters. But he also includes the word mercy here. And this word in the Greek is very much connected to the word hesed in Hebrew, the word that means God's steadfast and faithful covenant love, that he keeps for his people because of his covenant faithfulness. Often when the Hebrew word needed to be translated into the Greek, such as in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, this word mercy was the word that was used, God gives grace and peace, but also mercy to those he loves and calls to himself. In fact, that is the core of the gospel, his mercy. But the key to understanding the depth of this mercy is to recognize that the reason he loves us is not because of us. In fact, it is in spite of us, in spite of our evil, depraved hearts, that God has shown us love. That is what mercy is. We deserve death and hell and eternal torment. In spite of that, God has shown us mercy. You see, the gospel has been perverted to be a human-centered message that makes it seem as though we are so special and so worthy that God was forced to save us. But friends, that is why so many are turning from the gospel, or at least that perverted version, because you see, if human beings are just so innately valuable and special and worthy, then people are right in charging that God is unjust for not saving every one of them. Do you see how that perverse gospel actually turns people away from God? But in fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ begins with the bad news, the fact that while we as individuals were active in vile rebellion against the beautifully righteous nature and rule of God, he showed us mercy. To die on the cross in the place of even one vile sinner When what was deserved was an eternity of torment, is mercy beyond description. You and I deserve judgment for our rebellion against a holy God. And by his mercy, the Father sent the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit to die a death he did not deserve so that you and I would be plucked from the clutches of hell that we do deserve. That is mercy. That's the gospel. Friends, Jesus did not save you because you are so special, and gosh darn it, he needed you for his team. He saved you because you were the vilest of sinners, and it shows his great mercy to a lost world that he would pluck you and I out of the clutches of hell. Friends, he did not do this for just one vile sinner. He did it for you and for me. He did it for billions over the course of the centuries because of his great mercy. And so Paul speaks forward the speech of God. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father our Savior. Now you might pause for a moment here, if you're really paying attention, and say, now Hans, this was written to Timothy. Why are you connecting all of this to the local church? Why are you connecting this mercy to the church? He's giving mercy to Timothy. Well." Look at the end of the letter with me, would you? Just turn turn a couple pages to the end, chapter 6, and look at the very last phrase. It says, grace be with you. Grace be with you. In the Greek, that word you is expressed in the plural. See, Greek is, unlike English, (laughs) protected. Right now in English, everybody's ripping apart the language. But in Greek, it's protected. We know that it was plural. It was meant to be spoken to a plural audience. Humon, you, plural. You might even have a footnote in your Bible there. This letter, while addressed to Timothy, was also intended to be read to the church, the church that he even pastored. And it quickly became what's called an encyclical or a letter that was passed along to other local congregations so that they could benefit from the fruitful instruction contained within it. You see, in this letter, God is showing such amazing, steadfast love for his people that he wanted the church to know about it. And he's showing that steadfast love in ordering the church and stewarding it well. God didn't work salvation through Jesus and then look at the followers and say, good luck, figure it out on your own. How many of us as men who are fathers in this church would be seen as good fathers leading our families well if we didn't order our families, if we didn't make time for certain important things like loving our wives and helping them flourish, like leading our families in devotionals, like making sure our own devotional time was protected, like making sure that rather than spending times playing video games or investing in our hobbies, we're investing in the very disciples that have been entrusted to us under our own roof. So God loves the church through this book because he is saying I'm going to help order the church and give you a model and example of what your family should look like. He started with the apostles that formed the early church and then spread his people from Jerusalem to Samaria and Damascus and on to Antioch and from there to Asia Minor and Ephesus. And as he did so, he spoke through the apostles to order the church so that the church and the true gospel it proclaimed might be guarded. And so that the community that is driven and built upon it might properly proclaim the gospel through their life and their rhythm and their service. Friends, there is so much animosity toward the church today. Have you noticed that? And a lot of it is even from self-professed Christians. As if they weren't part of this church that they verbally tear down on Twitter. Now, much of that criticism is rightly deserved. We have not been wholly holding ourselves to the truth of God's Word. But can we just take a moment and recognize that without the local church over the last 2,000 years, the gospel would have not been preached and we would be dead in our sin and trespasses. Without the local church today, even in an environment where everybody thinks the true church is the parachurch, Guys, the gospel would not be preached. It would not be protected. For all its idiosyncrasies and faults, the true church has been the primary herald of the gospel for 2,000 years. And yes, there have been many tears among the wheat. But we need to stop acting like ungrateful, self-righteous children in our criticism of the church, especially online, and instead love the church so much that we serve it and constantly reform it back to the truth of Scripture from within. One of the primary taglines of the Reformation was, Ecclesia Semper Reformanda Est. And what it means in Latin is that the church must always be reforming itself, not in new and fancy ways that make culture just want to dig into the church, but in ways that constantly hold us back to the anchor of God's Word and the example of Jesus Christ the church must always be reformed. Friend, do you love the church you are a part of or is it kind of through gritted teeth that you hang out with it? Because Christ sure does love the local church. In fact, he died to make it his own and he calls it his bride. In this letter, we will see God doing just that, loving the church by ordering it placing it under godly authority that he has ordained, giving it a basis of the gospel that cannot and will not change, speaking directly about love in action through service to the vulnerable within the church, and setting up firm boundaries for what to do with those in the body who pervert the truth or wander off into anything that is not the core mission of the church, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this letter, we will see God's steadfast love for the church. And finally, we will see in 1 Timothy a letter that commands proper stewardship of the local church. A letter that commands proper stewardship of the local church. Now all of us today have a background theology, an experience that causes us to view authority and order in the church in a certain way. It might be this, with a thumbs up, It might be this with a thumbs down or it might be one of these right in the middle. You'll probably have an immediate response even as I've mentioned some of the things I've mentioned today that will tell you something about the state of your heart towards the authority of God and his use of the church body. But friends, these are ways God loves the church and the people within it. And I want to challenge you throughout this book that even if you have a heart response that throws up walls to the things that are stated, I want to challenge you not to look anywhere else but Scripture and to sit down with one of us as pastors or elders and walk through Scripture to see if maybe our hearts need to change instead of us warping Scripture to make it say what we want it to say. Now, Paul modeled the love that God has for the church and that he shows in this letter As he attempted to bring order to it, to steward it, and as he exhorted local churches to stay firmly affixed to the one true gospel. And yet he was often criticized and downright hated for it. Paul did not have to prove his love, though. He had suffered imprisonment for the sake of the gospel, he would eventually die for the sake of the gospel. He knew the gospel and the sacrifice it requires better than perhaps anyone else at this time save Jesus. It was during this first imprisonment that he wrote to the Ephesian church calling them to the unity of the gospel. And then after he was freed, he and Timothy traveled to Ephesus to encourage them and exhort them. And when he was called to Macedonia to continue planting churches and proclaim the gospel, he left Timothy behind to continue properly stewarding the church there. Now, we will go more heavily into verses 3 and 4 next week, but they give us a glimpse of this charge that he left with Timothy, these marching orders that Paul had given him. Take a look again at verse 3, chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, most of us read this and we go, oh, great, okay, let's keep reading and see what's in the devotional for me today. But friends, I want you to pause for a second and, and think about what was going on here. Hey, Timothy, there's a real mess in Ephesus. There's a bunch of heresy, and there's a number of people who need to be called out and disciplined for the fact that they're spreading heresy and letting the worldview of the world creep into the church. What do you think Timothy's response was? (laughs) Gee, thanks, Paul. (laughs) No. And man, as we'll read, Timothy was not this brutish guy. He was kind of mild and meek. He even got ulcers and kind of depressed because of what he was having to deal with as a pastor because Paul had charged him to deal with the Ephesian heresy. He is to bring God's authority to bear through godly servant leaders. He is to center of the church on the truth of the gospel that glorifies God and brings men into submission to God's rule. He is to press upon the church the need for unity as an outward witness to the world around them that the king of God is amongst them. And friends, all of this was in the midst of a culture. You think our culture is bad, but this is a culture in Ephesus that was tempting the church to leave Christ. They were tempted by the occult and the myth of the Roman gods. They were tempted by a religion that was very tightly joined to the politics of Rome. They were being tempted to participate in the sexual licentiousness and depravity that had been lifted up in this cult city of the goddess Diana. And the church was being split by people within the church, unaware that their perversion of the true gospel and submission to worldly ideologies and worldviews was not unifying the church, but causing division and confusion. And so this timid young man, Timothy, was asked to step into this chaos And hold firm in the love of Christ and the stewardship given to him by the authority of God over this small, local church. That's the background story. Now friends, you and I have been given a similar stewardship over God's household. And it is a stewardship that is not to be shied away from at the first sign of trouble. Can you imagine if Timothy said, Peace, I'm out? <laughs> you deal with it yourself, Paul. Now we probably would have had still something, but can you imagine if we didn't have first and second Timothy? We would be the lesser for it. This word stewardship means a job of supervision or taking care of God's household, God's people, and each of us are responsible. Yes, a good portion of this letter will address elders and deacons, but all of us are given a command by Christ to steward well the household of God. When you proclaim to follow Christ and accept his free gift of salvation— You don't get to just wander off and continue your life as you want to. Can you imagine if here at the church a young couple wanted to be wed and everybody was backing them and and helping them and stewarding their marriage with them and then they get up to the vows and we bless them and I officiate the wedding and then the husband walks off on his own. Would we all go, oh man, that's a man of great character. No, we would go, he must not know what he stepped into. He must not understand, nor must he, he must not have a love for the one he proclaimed to love. You don't get to just wander off and continue your life as you want to. You're given a share in the stewardship of God's household of faith. So brother, sister, what part do you play in the stewarding of this house? Do you claim any responsibility at all Or do you come to take of the buffet of God's Word? Have you taken on the responsibility of being in covenant membership? Do you submit to the membership of this church and its leadership, or do you only do that in so long as it agrees with what you agree with? Do you make that role of member and what it requires a priority in your life? If not, by the authority of God the Father and the command of His Word... I'm here to tell you something needs to change. So many of us feign frustration at the chaos of our lives as if life is forcing us to deprioritize God's people, as if we have no responsibility or control over it. Gosh, that soccer game just seems to always creep up when there's a congregational meeting. I have no control over it. But friends, perhaps the Lord is lovingly challenging you today to follow his lead in bringing order to the chaos and prioritizing what he prioritizes. And sometimes the place where we need to look to see how we are stewarding the household of God can be seen in how we steward our own immediate households. Men of mission, do you imitate God's work in your home? Or is your religion only here on Sundays and you leave it behind when you go out these doors? Do you lead in a way that prioritizes your walk with Christ and your family's walk with Christ? Do you lay down your life to enable your family to flourish in their walk with Jesus and in their part in this body? Women of mission, do you assist your husband in leading your family in devotion to Christ? Or are the cultural and societal pressures of what a good soccer mom should look like causing you to hinder the walk of your family? Are you helping or hindering the process of devotion to Christ and involvement in his household of faith? If you're not married in here, how are you laying down your life in service to the people of this church and beyond? You may say, well, Hans, I don't have a a family. But brother and sister, you're missing the point. You're already part of a family. This is your family. And praise God, he will add to that family one day if he sees for you to be married. Don't wait to practice faithfulness in stewarding a household until you're married. You can help serve this household of which you are already a faithful member. We, who have families already, know you're part of our family, and we want you invested with us. Come join us. Be part of our family devotions. Hang out with us. Have dinner with us. Show up on our doorstep. God has graciously provided instruction through the book of 1 Timothy on how to order his household of faith. and So as we step into the first letter written to Timothy, let's repent of our resistance to authority and order and sacrifice. Let's be a church full of people that don't look at this and go, oh boy, this is going to be convicting. But we go, oh boy, this is going to be convicting. Because it's going to change us more into the image of Christ. And it's going to give us a priority of the household of faith. Let's be a church full of people that answer the call to steward the household of God well. Amen? Amen. Amen.